The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. If instead Putin doubles down, then so shall we, further ratcheting up economic pressure and supporting Ukraine with finance. Sanctions have to be as powerful as they can possibly be. We will be pushing the government to go further and faster. We could have a massive miscalculation and we will then be in a full-scale war across the globe. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. Good afternoon, I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up on today's programme, inflation hits a 40-year high. Consumer prices rising by 9% in April compared to last year. We'll be speaking to Conservative MP Mike Wood about what he thinks the government and the Bank of England should be doing about it. And after Foreign Secretary Liz Truss laid out plans for legislation to override parts of the Brexit deal it negotiated with Brussels, we'll be speaking to the woman who wrote the book on the Northern Irish border. Katie Hayward from Queen's University Belfast joins us to discuss the latest on the protocol. Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher and E.T., the extraterrestrial of the year, 1982. That was the last time that UK inflation was at 9% that it hit in the year to, to April. The driver was surging household energy bills, which jumped more than 50% when the cap was raised last month. When it comes to soaring prices, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak told the Commons that no option is off the table, including a windfall tax. That's despite Conservative MPs voting down an opposition amendment to the Queen's speech backing a one-off levy on oil and gas profits. Well, let's discuss today's big issues with our first guest, Mike Wood, Conservative MP for Dudley South. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Now, everyone uh, seems to agree that the government needs to do more on energy bills. Do you think that the Chancellor is softening the ground for a U-turn on a windfall tax? Do you think it was sensible to vote down Labour's amendment? Well, firstly, I think people need to understand that an amendment to a Queen's speech is really taken as a, as a confidence issue. The expectation normally for a government is if you can't get a Queen's speech through at the House of Commons unamended, then the government would normally resign. So this was much more of a procedural thing. It wouldn't have actually introduced windfall tax. Obviously, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister have both said that you know, they're looking at all options, including uh, a windfall tax. I mean, I spoke in yesterday's debate. I think it is something we should be seriously considering. But we should also be aware, firstly, of actually the uh, the costs, the, the, the risks with a windfall tax, as well as what it will do, what it won't do. Um, I think Labour Party is suggesting that it will pay for £600 uh, per household. It won't. It'll, it'll pay for about £4.50 a month, I think. So it's, it's closer to £50 than £600, I think. We've just seen in the latest inflation figures the effect of the, the energy price cap going up. It's likely to rise again in October. So is it now time to look at more fundamental reforms to the way the electricity markets work, or at least to have the government pay green levies and other charges? Well, I, I think there is going to need to be um, the, the broader reform of not just electricity, but energy markets uh, in general, in terms of obviously from uh, generation through to uh, 
through to supply. I, I think that needed to happen anyway. Obviously, rising prices around the world, particularly Western Europe, North America, have brought that into much sharper focus. But I mean, I don't think we can wait for those reforms to come into place and take effect. Obviously, we are going to need to be looking at what additional support can be brought in for families and individuals who are struggling now and with prices rising sharply. We'll, there will be more who, who are struggling over the coming months. So we need to be looking at really a broader package of the support that can be introduced alongside trying to reform those, uh, those markets. Rishi Sunak's going to be speaking to the uh, CBI uh, this evening. Tony Dank has already made a number of comments uh, on on how much uh, consumers need more help from the government. This is an issue for business uh, as well as for consumers. What would you like to see uh, more broadly on the cost of living from the Chancellor? Well, I mean, I think we also have to recognise what's already either been introduced or announced. You know, it's a £22 billion package. That's a significant package of measures. You know, it's more than is spent on policing and border force uh, combined, and that's obviously on things like changes to the universal credit taper rate, so people can keep more of the money for low-income uh, workers. The uh, the increase in the national insurance contribution threshold that's coming into force from July, which will mean that an average worker will have another £330 in their pay, uh, pay packet over the the year, and of course, the national minimum wage increase alongside that. This work about a thousand pounds to someone on minimum wage working full time hours. So, I mean, these are some really significant measures alongside the council tax uh, rebate. But I think we do need to be looking at things like, for example, the pensions that we know that the pension up, up rating was based on last September's inflation figures, as they always are. But that's fine when the difference between September and April may be half a percentage point. That's you know, 40, 50p a week. When it's potentially five or six percentage point, you're talking a lot of money. And so I think we need to be looking at how we can have a midterm up rating on, uh, particularly on pensions, but also I think on universal credit, just to make sure that those things, the, um, mm. uh, the, uh, the index that they're tied to actually reflects the increases that have happened now rather than the uh, increase that had happened up to last summer. Right. The Foreign Secretary, meanwhile, has been setting out plans to give the UK the right to suspend parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, to lift checks on goods. This is a risky strategy. We know the EU is warning against unilateral action by the British government. Is Liz Truss being too confrontational on this matter? I I don't think she is. I think all of us... uh, really want to see a negotiated outcome that solves a lot of the problems we have with the implementation of the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol. Yes, the unnecessary checks, particularly on goods moving between mainland Britain and Northern Ireland, where there's no serious chance of meaningful amounts of it uh, making its way into the Republic and onto the, uh, the EU's internal market. Uh, I was out in Brussels last week. I'm a member of the uh, the Parliamentary Part- Partnership Assembly that was set up under the withdrawal agreement to look at some of the outstanding issues. And probably got at the moment has been the EU's um, negotiating mandate, what they're telling their negotiator. That, that's not moved really from where it was 18 
months ago, we, we, we are going to need some flexibility on both sides to get, uh, if we're going to get an outcome that, of course, recognises the need for, for checks where we're going to have large amounts of goods flowing across but borders. In, in, so, in that but context... And cheese and ham sandwich is not going to bring down the European internal, internal market. But in that context, then, what's what's the point of threatening to disapply parts of the protocol if there is that dialogue? If you're, you know, you're one of those people who's travelling back and forth to Brussels, you know that there's a willingness from the EU side as well to work on the parts that aren't working. What's the point in, in going this far? Well, no, I, I'm, I'm not sure there is that willingness at the moment. I mean, these negotiations on the core issue of the checks across the Irish Sea hasn't really... There's not been any movement in eight months. So I think having these legal powers in place to use the provisions in Article 16 of the the withdrawal agreement, if if they're needed, I think is a sensible measure. But I think if we can get, obviously, the two sides back to the negotiating table and prepared to show the flexibility that has been lacking, I think, over the last uh, eight to 12 months, then that is a better outcome. Um, The Mike, you're launching. Uh, sorry, you're launching a new group today, aren't you, with other Tory MPs, uh, academics, and industry voices from the West Midlands? Why does the region need a new group? Okay, I mean this is obviously about making sure that the West Midlands has strong voice within government, within Parliament. Uh, it really is grouping of West Midlands Conservative MPs. Forty-four out of the fifty-nine West Midlands MPs are now. Conservative. No, I think that's 28 of those have been won in the gained in the last uh, 12 years. So the political makeup of the West Midlands has changed massively over the last 12, 13 years. We need to look at how we can work more effectively together on issues that are of regional regional significance, things like infrastructure and investment, uh, and that means we need MPs to have the uh, the information as to. Uh, as to what uh, businesses, our research institutions, uh, Mayor of the West Midlands, Andy Street, you know, what, what people are, are, are pushing for. We need the facts and figures. You know, things like the ARIA, the Advanced Research and uh, Invention Agency, the difference that would make if it came to, uh, it came to the West Midlands for the, the region's uh, growth, skills and employment, would be massive, but the West Midlands has so much to offer uh, in terms of driving economic growth that we're going to need if wages are going to uh, keep pace with these rising costs. If you're looking for that sort of universal goals, though, why not include all the Labour MPs as well? Well, I, I think this is about making sure that there's a strong voice within within the governing party. The, uh, the party, there is, there are other. Um, other forums where we obviously do work very well on a cross-party basis. I chair an all-party group for, for the black country, so the part of the West Midlands that Dudley is in, where my vice chair is Pat McFadden, Labour MP for Wolverhampton. We have Valerie Vaz, Labour MP for Walsall, very active in it. So we do work very closely together. But I think there is a, there is a danger that with all the focus that there has been on Red Wall and obviously the uh, emergence of Conservatives in the North again, and then the pushback from traditional uh, base, support base 
uh, around the southeast and southwest, we need to make sure the West Midlands is able to uh, mm. punch its full weight mm-hmm. within Parliament and within government. And I think that making sure that government MPs have the information and the, okay. the coordination that we need to make that argument will be a big contribution. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look now at what else is making news in the world of politics. Bloomberg's Leanne Garrens joins us in studio. Leanne, Labour's calling for a review of rules about uh, whether MPs accused of crime should be allowed to enter Parliament. Um, why are they calling for this review? So, Stephen, yesterday we did hear that an unnamed Conservative MP was arrested on suspicion of rape and sexual assault. And I can say that today the Met Police has now confirmed he has been released on bail. Now, that's until a date in June pending further inquiries. Yesterday, the force said a man was in custody over allegations. Now, these do date back to 2002 and 2009. The Conservative chief has actually asked the MP not to attend Parliament at this time while the investigation is clearly ongoing. However, there are no rules in place to stop him entering Parliament at this time, so he can really essentially go against the whip if he does decide to do so. And we did see a lot of bills going through Parliament lately because of the Queen's speech. Those five days of bills and debates actually ended yesterday. But as you also mentioned at the beginning there, Stephen, Labour is calling for a review of rules about whether MPs accused of serious crimes should be allowed to enter the state. We'll see how this does unfold. At the moment, that MP is unnamed and has been bailed pending further inquiries. Now, another subject, an interesting bit of uh, research on the new Bloomberg UK front page. It's entitled Back to the Office. Some nine in 10 UK finance staff say no thanks. It doesn't apply to uh, people who work in radio. (laughs) No, definitely doesn't. We've been here every day through the pandemic even. But I think this survey just highlights one thing, how popular hybrid working has become really during the pandemic and we all figured out a lot of people did in different industries that you could remote work so let's get back to the survey and well what we've learned from it is more than 85% of UK finance workers no longer view the office as their main place of work according to the survey done by YouGov on behalf of Bloomberg and one of our BN reporters Tom Metcalf has covered this and he's done an absolutely great job. Ewan and Stephen this just highlights the 
challenge the industry faces if it tries to persuade bankers to return to pre-pandemic norms, whatever they may be. The rise of remote work is a challenge all white-collar industries are wrestling with, but it really poses a particular conundrum in finance, giving some critical roles. So that's particularly things like trading, and they demand a fully staffed office. This means firms like Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and other banks are pushing for the staff to return. However, they are treading a fine line because it's also saying that people among this industry are now leaving because they want a better quality of life. And this was also shown in this survey. So attempts to force a return could backfire spectacularly in today's tight labour market. And of course, we've seen huge bonuses, haven't we? And great pay for younger junior staff coming into the financing world. I actually think the story is so true because I don't know if you two have been speaking to your friends. I say, oh, I work in the office all the time and they're like well we love working from home it's given us so much freedom we can see our families more we can see our kids we might go on a morning run and we feel more productive so who knows and you say chance will be a fine thing chance is a fine thing but still we can always hope and dream yeah fascinating 40 just 14 percent now consider the office their main uh, workplace, as you say, a bit, a bit of a problem for companies in a very hot uh, labour market. Fascinating story. Thanks so much, uh, Bloomberg's Leanne Gerrins. Well, let's turn next to Brexit and the latest wranglings over the Northern Ireland Protocol. The Foreign Secretary has laid out plans to disapply parts of that agreement with the EU if issues around the customs arrangements can't be resolved. Joining us now is Katie Hayward, who's Senior Fellow at the Think Tank UK in a Changing Europe and Professor of Political Sociology at Queen's University Belfast. She's also written the book on the Northern Irish border and why it's such a complex issue for Brexit. Katie, welcome to Bloomberg Westminster. What did you make of Liz Truss's speech to Parliament? And did we learn much new, because we've heard these sort of threats before, from the UK government about how it plans to approach this issue? Uh, Thanks for having me, Stephen. So I think we didn't really hear much new, no. I mean, they're underlining the fact that they do intend to equip themselves as the government to reach the protocol, to be able to take unilateral action on it. Um, But the fundamentals are still there and they're familiar to us because the government have been repeating these since last July in its command paper on the protocol. So the top issues that it's talking about are movement of goods um, around the fact that Northern Ireland has to align with EU rules and standards on goods and goods entering Northern Ireland have to do so as well. Also mentioning the question of VAT subsidy control, state aid, and uh, last but not least, governance. Um, The issue of governance as the UK government sees it is the continued jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice um, in disputes that may arise in the future over the application of EU law in Northern Ireland. We know this is something that um, is very much um, opposed by um, certain portions of the Conservative Party. It's not an issue that's a big concern amongst um, parties in Northern Ireland particularly the DUP, its focus is on the movement of goods into Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland's place in the union. So the overarching question is, is this enough, I think, to encourage the DUP to um, go back into power sharing? The whole premise of this, of course, is that um, the democratic institutions in Northern Ireland have almost been held to ransom by the DUP over this issue. And interestingly enough, even as the British government is making such statements and saying, yes, you need to anticipate 
this legislation coming forward, the DUP is raising the bar and saying, well, actually, we need action, not just words. So we're not much has actually changed um, compared to the way it was even a week or even six months ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Katie, you set out very clearly the, the UK's list of demands, a very long list of demands. And this is this is not easy stuff either, is it? Do, do, do you think there is room for compromise on on any of this stuff? Do you think that, that the UK has a sort of end game in this? Because clearly the EU is not going to just say, OK, fine, ha- have all of that, is it? No, and the response in the EU um, has been quite clear. So we'll wait to see, it says, you know, exactly what's in this bill, um, but be sure we will use all the means at our disposal to react proportionately and um, in a substantial and significant way if it is the case that the UK is going to break international law in this way. Um, So they are sort of holding off for the time being, but um, the the situation um, is one that's it's all too familiar in many ways. Um, we are still we're still in a situation in which um, the UK government is saying, well, we'll continue to talk. We'd love to have a negotiated outcome with you. Um, it's very clear that the EU is willing to talk. It's willing to show flexibility. Um, but ultimately, you always come across, you know, this absolute line from the from the EU in terms of its legal foundations and what it's able to accept. So fundamentally for the EU, they say, you know, the protocol in and of itself entailed a lot of flexibility from our side. So essentially we are trusting the UK to manage our external border of the single market for goods. We're entrusting that to a non-member state. Um, That's a big risk on their part. And so far they're increasingly feeling uncomfortable with having taken that risk uh, because it's not being fully implemented, this um, this Irish Sea border, and it looks as though the UK government wants to Im- implement it even less and in an even more light touch way. It does really so, seem like, sorry, Katie, to cut across there, but it does yeah. really seem like relationship, relations are deteriorating. We had Leo Varadkar, yeah. the Irish Deputy Prime Minister, speaking this morning, saying uh, there's now an atmosphere of distrust that UK-Ireland relations aren't good either. It, it yeah. doesn't seem like, even though both sides are saying we want to negotiate, we want to find a solution, there, there's the question over the EU's negotiating mandate for this. Maris Shevchevich has a clear mandate from member states over what he could negotiate on. Does that now need to be changed? Well, certainly the government would like it to be changed because it's constantly saying, well, we, we're coming up against this, you know, the big um, red NO from, from the EU when it comes to issues such as the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice. Um, so it would want the EU's mandate to change. But unfortunately, uh, given the nature of the EU, if the mandate for Shevkovich was to change, it would require the unanimous agreement of all 27 member states. Now, in and of itself, that's a difficult, achieve, you know, difficult thing to achieve in an environment in which the UK at the moment is um, certainly adding to the sense of alarm and distrust from the EU's point of view, that mandate is really very, very um, unlikely to shift. And pointing to uncertainty and instability in Northern Ireland doesn't necessarily convince them, I don't think, because, I mean, they are aware that all of this is apparently or purportedly coming in response to the tactics of the DUP. And, um, you know, there is awareness of the domestic circumstances in Northern Ireland and the fact that the DUP, all else aside, would be kind of reluctant to go back into power sharing in the new conditions 
post the election, with Sinn Féin having the largest number of seats in the Assembly and thus holding the First Minister's position. Um, so I think there'll be a wee bit of scepticism there around the, the uniting of those two factors. The EU would, uh, for the time being, repeat its points, I think. We're willing to show flexibility uh, as needed on the basis of evidence put forward by businesses and others in Northern Ireland, as we have done before on medicines. Uh, but to go much further beyond that would require a change in environment. And most particularly, as Neil Varadkar and others have pointed to, we'd need more trust in this relationship. And at the moment, that trust is, is only diminishing. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.